Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Five million dollars didn't stop Donald Trump. Well, $83.3 million tonight on a bonus hour of Laura Coates Live. The jury says that Donald Trump must pay $83.3 million to E. Jean Carroll for defamatory statements that he made against her in 2019. Vastly more than I think anyone even expected, and a huge victory for E. Jean Carroll. After that verdict sheet was given to the judge, but before it was actually read, the judge asked the jury foreperson, what does the M mean? The answer, million. And that comes on top of $5 million already awarded back in May by the jury that found Trump sexually abused Carol and then defamed her in 2022 by disparaging her and denying the allegations. Sources telling CNN the former president is livid, obviously. And he's gone on social media, also obviously, to try to blame, wait for it, President Joe Biden. And to falsely claim that his First Amendment rights were taken away even though the First Amendment doesn't actually give him the right to defame. Remember, just yesterday, the judge admonished Trump for loudly insisting, quote, I never met the woman, and struck his claim that Carol's accusations were, quote, totally false because the earlier jury had already found her accusations to be true. And his antics, well, they continue today, getting up and leaving the courtroom in the middle of Carol's attorney's closing argument. Now, after the jury's unanimous, and yes, it was a unanimous verdict, the judge warning them, and this tells you a lot about where we are right now in the state of affairs, warning those jurors, quote, my advice is to never disclose that you were on this jury. We have lots to discuss tonight with Gene Rossi, former federal prosecutor, also Rebecca Legrand, a White House white collar federal criminal defense attorney. <laughs> Sorry, the Freudian slip because White House they're apparently there's it's issues, right? Um, but when you think about this, first of all, taking a step back, eighty-three point three million dollars. He was on notice that there was already a trial that confirmed that he in fact had done what he was accused of doing. He had a chance at that point in time to argue his case, he wanted to do it here instead. As a defense attorney, are you surprised they tried to bite the apple again? I'm surprised that they tried to bite the apple again when the judge had issued multiple orders saying you cannot bite the apple again, which is a well-established legal principle, collateral estoppel or issue preclusion. The judge found at the outset, we are not going to relitigate what I've already determined and what the jury had already determined in the first trial, which was that Donald Trump sexually assaulted Ms. Carroll. That had been determined and determined more graphically than that. And so as a defense lawyer, I would follow the judge's order. Uh, but that is not the choice that was made here. But let me ask you, I mean, I think a lot of people are wondering this point when it comes to that line between professing your innocence, defending, mm -hmm. I didn't do it, I don't know her. I, I didn't do what you're accusing me of doing. The presumption of innocence and then defamatory statements. 
when you look at this, he's making arguments about the First Amendment still to this day. He's claiming that he's not able to defend himself. This is all part of a political witch hunt. Help me, help me explain this distinction between one's defense in a case and defamatory statements. Well, I mean, in a defamation case, you have the right to say, make a comment about a person's character if you have a basis. But in this case, he called her a liar and he said other things that just attacked the core of her moral compass. So that takes it from First Amendment to defamation. And the one thing I want to say about this is Donald Trump, when he walked into that courtroom, and I can't wait till they have the January 6th trial. When he walked into that courtroom, he realized one thing. Mm. I'm the big dog and I cannot control what's going on in this room. And that's what I saw with Donald Trump. He likes to control things. He likes to be a dictator. And when he was before Judge Kaplan, he was like an emperor with no clothes. And that drove him absolutely categorically bonkers. And when he walked out during Roberta Kaplan's uh, closing argument. Wasn't that amazing to think about? That, that to me, he wants to be president of the United States. And he walks out of a courtroom during the closing argument of Roberta Kaplan's presentation. That doesn't show a person who should be president again. That shows a person who should be in the corner with a dunce cap. Well, for, well, let's take aside the, the presidency. Just talk about the strategy for a second, right? Yes. If you are a defendant in a courtroom, yeah. and, you know, we've all been in trials. We've seen the way that defense attorneys, maybe you have as well, sort of guided the, the mm. client to dress a certain way. Maybe yep. some fake glasses Absolutely. go on. They get a little bit cleaned up in different yep. ways. Haircuts change, yep. you know, glasses. attitude. They're looking at the jury in different ways. You don't have them get up in the middle of the trial and no. the, and then throw them out. No. Client control is a thing we talk about. Mm. And there are clients where that's easier or harder. Usually, though, you build a relationship, you build trust, and your client trusts you when you say, I know this is going to be hard, but you've got to sit still, not make any faces, even though it's hard. But we know Donald Trump's not like that. You can't control Donald Trump. He's going to do what he's going to do. And I think it's true. I don't, he couldn't handle sitting still in court listening to someone say something he didn't like. Listen to what A.G. and Carol's lawyer had to say about that moment when he walked out of the courthouse. I think it hurt him terribly. I mean, our whole case was about the fact that Donald Trump is unable to follow the law, unable to follow the rules. He thinks they don't apply to him. And as bad as what he did to E.G. and Carol was, and the sexual assault was terrible, and as horrifying as the defama defamation was back in 2019, the most amazing, shocking part of it all is that he kept on doing it. That's the part, I think, that is so important. That if you, if you frame this entire thing, not about, which it's not any longer, he's already been found, sexual abuse, but instead about, look, we told you not to say anything. You should not say anything. It's defamatory if you do say things, and then you walk out. Did that hurt him? You really think so? Oh. <laughs> I've had, I've, in my criminal life, when I was a prosecutor, I used to love when a defendant would laugh at me. And I've had defendants laugh at me during trial, mm. during closing arguments, during direct examinations or cross. I used to love that because when a jury sees that, when the jury sees conduct that is unbecoming, a former president of the United States especially, that jury, that's why they only took less than three hours to find 65M, 65 million. His conduct destroyed him. You know... He's been attacking, and you heard Alina Haba outside the courthouse 
attacking the justice system, attacking New York juries, talking about, look, this was a foregone conclusion because look where we are. We're in New York. Now, of course, he's only recently a Floridian, right? We know that. Um, but that is the heart of why she thinks this was not going to be a fair shake. She talked about not being able to put on expert witnesses and beyond. But again, this was not that part of the trial. What do you make of her attacking the system? It's, uh, it's her client's M.O., right? Every time Donald Trump loses something, he blames everybody else. He's the victim. The court wasn't fair. The election wasn't fair. Again and again, we see this. But this was a jury of New Yorkers from a broad... They weren't all, you know, men, women from Manhattan. It was only two women on the jury. Mm -hmm. This was a broad group of nine jurors, the second set of nine jurors, who have unanimously found the same way. He's a New Yorker. I mean, this is a jury of his peers. Mm -hmm. you know, what is she... Uh, this is fair. This is how our system works. And to criticize... I was pretty horrified to see an attorney stand on the courthouse steps and say the system is corrupt after a jury of nine people unanimously returned a decision. You know, when you look at the number, and again, people are almost gobsmacked by the number, maybe in part because you wonder who's got this kind of money, but you remember who we're talking about here exactly. and the, the breakdown of compensatory and punitive damages. Yes. $83 million compared to $5 million last year. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, look at that, 7.3 for emotional harm, 11 for reputational repair, and then $65 bucks for punitive, a la punishment. The right. punishment factor here. Right. Can that stand? Oh, the amount of the verdict? Yeah. Absolutely. And when Donald Trump appeals, he has to put up a bond, and he has to put up a bond that's equal to $83 million plus interest. So his bond has to be about $95 million before he appeals. And if he loses his appeal, that money all goes to E. Jane Carroll. And it also will go to her in the first case wow. because he had to put a bond up for that. They will collect the money. It may take time, but in both cases, he will have to cough up. And need not be liquid assets, right? This can be the collective. Sure. Yes. E. Jean yep. Carroll Towers. Yep. Wow. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you just E. Jean Carroll Towers? Yeah. Others have said it wow. first, but yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, Jean Rossi, Rebecca LeGrand, thank you both so much. Look, the jury has spoken. In fact, two juries now have spoken. It's not the end of all of this, you can imagine. How will the judge make his final decision? Of course, he has to sign off on an order and then it becomes the law. We'll break it down next. We're back with more on our huge story tonight. A jury saying that the former president, Donald Trump, should pay $83.3 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll. Now, Trump's legal team says that it plans to immediately appeal this verdict. Joining me to break down the damages, CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson, who I can only imagine whenever you're watching these high-profile trials, you're thinking to yourself, what would I have done differently? What would have been better? And now that you have the outcome, Joey, I mean, 83, was it 18.3 million in compensatory damages, 65 million in punitive damages. First, break down these terms for us. Compensatory meaning what? Punitive meaning what? 
Sure, Laura, good to be with you. So starting with the compensatory damages, as we see there, what happens is compensatory damages are damages designed, as they note, to compensate you, to put you in the position that you would have been in absent the harm. Here you see the delineation between the emotional and reputational. Well, why? Because from a reputational perspective, Laura, obviously there's a cost involved when someone impugns your reputation, particularly from the bully pulpit, which is the president's of the United States. How does that impair your reputation? How does it impair your business? How does it impair your ability to deal in the social world that we deal in and people dealing with you and the revenue that would be associated with that? Emotional damages, right? A little more difficult to quantify, but certainly there's psychological and other injuries that really uh, inure to you when there's a problem like this, right? When people are harassing you on social media, Boy, do we have a social media with lightning speed that can tell you just exactly how they feel about you. And then, of course, we get to the issue of punitive Unsolicited, damages. by the way. Unsolicited. Exactly people. right, Lord. You can have somebody who was second later tweets and Facebooks and all kind of things, which really giving you their opinion. And then as it relates to punitive damages, those damages are designed to punish. And that punishment is to let you know that what you did is unacceptable, measuring your conduct and certainly deterring you from engaging in that conduct again, I think the jury was persuaded by the fact that you had a defendant, in this case, the president, who seemed undeterred because he kept repeating, repeating, repeating again what the defamatory claims were here. So those are the nature of the damages that the jury imposed today. And boy, were they substantial. They are. And again, he was on notice. I mean, $5 million last year, a different type of trial that based more on the underlying allegations to determine whether, in fact, he had sexually abused her. This was about what it would cost him after that factual finding had been determined. But, you know, there's a there's a moment in time from when the jury renders their verdict, gives this amount and the judge officially signing off on it. So you've got this little window. I'm going to call it a window of opportunity, Joey, because if you were on Trump's legal team, what would you be doing to lessen the damages that have been suggested by the jury? So by the time that final sign off goes, it's a little bit less. Yeah, you know what, uh, Lord, th this is a great question, but unfortunately that question comes a week too late. Mm. I think that tonally, when you're trying the case itself, and again, it was, it was only about damages, the defamatory statements, right? Defamation statements that impugn your reputation that ultimately damage you. And that's what defamation's all about. That's what the trial was all about. But I just think tonally, uh, the tone of the defense team was disconnected from reality. And I think it annoyed the jury. At some point, you have to be contrite. At some point, you have to accept responsibility. At some point, you have to say, I didn't mean, you know, perhaps it could have went a different way. You just, uh, you know, you don't storm out of courtrooms in the middle of closing arguments. And so the reason I say that, Laura, in response to your question is, I think a case is just not about, after a verdict, making arguments before a judge as to the disproportionality of the verdict, as to whether it should have been different, as to what could have happened. I think the, the start comes right at the start, at the beginning. And then at this point, perhaps you raise some arguments and other issues, but I just think that they so, the Trump team played for that 13th juror, right? I know there were only nine jurors, but we call, right, tw generally there's 12 jurors, so we call it tw the 13th juror, the people at home, the politics, the election year, and this is about what happened in the courtroom. And I think that was a missed opportunity. And I think the damages that were awarded, although significant, certainly have a, a, a very good chance of standing. Well, he has been trying to appeal to that 13th juror for quite some time. Even the appearance, the decisions of when to prioritize 
appearances and when to not do so. You have pundits talking all the time about the campaign and campaign stops as the courtroom. But there will be some moments and they will, they will appeal. They've already said they're going to immediately appeal the verdict. Sure. That's not based on facts, though. Like the factual findings are not going to be appealable unless there was some judicial error in allowing testimony in or in considering some particular legal argument. But did you hear anything during this trial? Again, the damages phase that could over could lead to overturning today's decision at all? Yeah, you know, Laura, so that's a great point because this is different and unique, this being the trial, and as much as generally fi- trials are about factual determinations, mm-hmm. you have a verdict as to those facts, which would be defamation, false statements, and then you go to the issue once liability is established to how much it costs. This was just about what the costs were, but I think that, you know, that's a lot of what appeals are inside baseball, what the judge allowed you to do, what the judge didn't, motions you made before the judge about evidence to be introduced that perhaps the judge shut down or the perhaps the judge, you know, let in. But I think, you know, at its core, the Trump team, in addition to all the statements you heard his attorney making on the courthouse steps that are in themselves disconnected for reality, that's another segment. Uh, but I think that it's going to be about the reasonability of the particular verdict. Is this, was this reasonable? Was the actual conduct so egregious as to merit this? Was the award disproportionate to ultimately the injury that was suffered? And, and was it similar or dissimilar to other awards? Now, briefly, that's a tough question because who gets defamed by the president of the United States? Right. That's a bully pulpit that so many people hear about, right? And so the reality is, is it's hard to measure this case against others. The point I'm making, though, is that they will argue that it's so gross disproportionate as to shock the conscience. And as a result of that, it should be diminished. Let's see if that carries the day. Last last point, Laura, and that is we know punitive damages really are designed to send a message and to halt, stop the conduct. What would it take to stop a person in Trump's position to stop? Perhaps that number, right, that was awarded is the appropriate number for this particular circumstance. So that's an argument that Trump team is going to have to overcome uh, for a person standing in his shoes and for a person who has his wealth. Well, that person in those shoes will have a series of microphones and, and cameras in front of him along many a campaign stop and rally. And of course, he's got his thumbs in all the social media. So we'll see if he, in fact, is deterred. Joey Jackson, thank you so much. Always great to hear your mind. Thank you, Laura. Be well. Up next, a controversial Alabama execution using an untested method is drawing big backlash. Now, even the White House is weighing into all of it. Plus, the breaking news in the wrestling world after WWE founder Vince McMahon was accused of sexual assault. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years, and even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently: ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. The White House weighing in on the highly controversial execution of a death row inmate in Alabama, saying it's, quote, deeply troubled. Now, last night, the state executed convicted murderer Kenneth Smith using nitrogen gas. It was the first time that that method had ever been used in this country. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights says it may amount to torture. But Alabama officials, they are doubling down. The state's attorney general saying this today. As of last night, nitrogen epoxy as a means of execution is no longer an untested method. It is a proven one. I think we will definitely have more nitrogen epoxy executions in Alabama. The commissioner of Alabama's Department of Corrections saying the procedure went according to plan. But take a listen to a witness of the inmate's execution. He appeared conscious for several minutes into the execution. For about two minutes following that, Kenneth Smith shook and rides uh, for about two minutes on a gurney. That was followed by several minutes of deep breaths on the gurney. Following that, his breath slowed until it was no longer perceptible for media witnesses. Joining me now is Sister Helen Prejean. She is the author of Dead Man Walking and an anti-death penalty activist for the last three decades. Sister Prejean, thank you so much for being here today. I mean, we have been covering this and the wider issue of what this means constitutionally, because as you know, sister, the Eighth Amendment protects American citizens from cruel and unusual punishment, from something that we've, we've seen. Um, and everything we've seen so far with this particular case, do you think that Kenneth Smith's execution was spared from that cruel or unusual punishment? No, I believe he did experience torture, which is defined, and we have signed the torture convention anti-torture convention, an extreme mental or physical assault on someone rendered defenseless. I've accompanied six people to execution and they all have the same nightmare, anticipatory, waiting to die. And, and the nightmare is the guards are coming to get them. It's their time. People on death row are human beings who are, are conscious, imaginative beings. And then they are given a date of execution, they begin to anticipate it. So now we're looking at the method, which I lay right in the lap of the Supreme Court of the United States, which is allowing states to experiment with different methods. Ever since the pharmaceutical company in Europe cut off the drug they had been using, the Supreme Court allows them to use different methods. Try this out, see if this works. So now you have the AG of Alabama saying, yep, it worked and we're going to use it. Mm. You are a human being lying on that gurney. And so it's always torture. It's always cruel punishment. 
I've always wondered, sister, I'm so familiar with your work and your advocacy. I've always wondered about what it is like in the work you've done. You've worked with death row inmates for decades. And and what is it like when you are in these rooms, when you're asked to be a spiritual advisor? What is that process like logistically, but emotionally at those times? Yeah. Well, one of the things is I know what my, my mission is. I know why I'm there. And a total focus is on them. And for them to look at my face as it happens, because my face is saying to them, you are a son of God, you are a human being. And they know I am resisting the death in every way I can. But in terms of costliness, the, we, do we often think of the guards and the people who have to carry this out in our name? I tell the story in Dead Man Walking of one of the guards on death row that was part of the execution team. After five executions, he calls me in his office and he goes, sister, I'm going to have to quit this job. I come home after these executions. I've known them. I served them their breakfast. I got to know them. I know they did a terrible crime. But then when you're there with them and they're defenseless and you help kill them and I get in my lazy boy chair and I can't sleep and I can't eat. And in my gut, I know I'm helping to defend, to kill a defenseless person. What is that like for you to hear? What guidance or wisdom do you provide? Well, I mean, I, yeah, well, I mean, I could just see the costliness in them. I was at, you know, I'm going to be with Ivan Cantu. We're doing all we can to prevent his death on February 28th in Texas. More and more evidence is coming out of all the unfair things and the lies told at his trial. And we're just trying to get a hearing that they can look at the new evidence. And it was a, one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I'm with some nice people. I'm with some of the religious advisors, some of the people who, you know, do religion on death row with people. You can tell they're kind of people and they're going to have to participate in this. And it's my orientation, what I can do when I'm in the execution chamber. And I got about five or six different signals. They didn't say we oppose the execution, but signals. We know we're not too happy about this, or, but yet it's their job, and there they are involved in this system, including the warden who participates, who presides over all these executions in Texas, who has killed one-third of all the, the people executed in this country. Wow. Sister, just thinking about making the choice to be the last face that one sees knowing that the Supreme Court oftentimes rejects the last minute pleas for a safe execution and then balancing that against the families of the victims of the person that has been killed. Um, it must be overwhelming to think about, even those of the deepest faith, right. even those with the most centered and stable emotional state. It must take its toll. The cost on you must also be great, is it? Well, we can't look at the cost on me, but this thing of balancing with the victim's family, that it does nothing to heal a victim's family. And often the death penalty divides a family. Some are for it, some are against it. The average weight of a victim's family, when somebody gets sentenced to death at trial till their execution is 17 years. How can people heal that very public space waiting for somebody to be killed, look at this. And we say to them, you're gonna get to sit and you're gonna have get to watch 
as the state kills the one who killed your loved one and watching that killing is going to heal you. Look how bogus that is, Marley. Look how bankrupt that is. And though there's no balancing with victims' families. The DAs use that to try to look like and justify what they're doing. A person has died. A person has been killed. That is wrong. Our role in society is to keep citizens safe, you know, incapacitate the violent person. That's what prisons are for. But not imitate it. I mean, you kill the killer, like Brian Stevenson was saying. Somebody burns down a house, you set fire to their house, they rape somebody, you send a rape squad in every Friday night, you imitate the worst possible human behavior. How does that save anybody? We can do better than this. We got to do better than this. The only way we got to keep educating the people to say, are you sure we need to do this? Is this what we need to be doing? And it doesn't stop violence in any way. We really know that. There's no deterrence value in this at all. Well, Sister Helen Prejean, you are asking the right questions. I wonder what the answers will be and who will provide them and when while we wait for more executions to take place. One you've mentioned on February 28th. We will follow that story. And please don't hesitate to come back. I've, I've learned a lot from you over the years. It has guided many a principled prosecutor. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Think, Laura, what's going to stop it is us, us getting educated. People like you, people like us, keep getting the truth out. Thank you. There is breaking news. The founder of WWE, Vince McMahon, resigning from his role in the company after being accused of sexual assault and trafficking and physical abuse against a former staffer. I'll have more on that in just a moment. There's breaking news tonight. Vince McMahon has just resigned from his role as executive chairman of TKO. That's the parent company of WWE, the wrestling behemoth that he founded. Now, this resignation comes amidst a lawsuit from a former WWE employee that accuses McMahon of sexual assault and trafficking and physical abuse. Now, he is saying, quote, out of respect for the WWE universe, the extraordinary TKO business and its board members and shareholders, partners and constituents, and all of the employees and superstars who helped make WWE into the global leader it is today, I have decided to resign from my executive chairmanship and the TKO board of directors effective immediately. Let's get right to Khadija Safdar, enterprise reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Khadija, you were the one to first report on the allegations in this case. What more can you tell us tonight about the resignation now? So this, as you said, um, follows actually like a day after the lawsuit was filed. It was filed just yesterday. Um, So I've covered many stories about misconduct at the workplace. And this lawsuit is among the most serious I've seen in terms of the nature of the allegations. Um, It alleges sex trafficking, abuse. And one thing to note was like in the complaint, there are text messages between the staffer and Vince McMahon that were reproduced there that um, back up many portions of her story. And um, there's, it describes the classic signs of grooming and um, an abusive relationship and then intensifying sexual demands. 
And the allegations were are very were very serious. Um, there were sexual assaults in the WWE offices mm. that she's describing. Um, McMahon, in one instance, defecating on her head. Um, ex- there's um, where the, him sharing explicit photos of her with others in the WWE offices, um, alleging that she was trafficked to others at the workplace too. I mean, it, the allegations are unbelievable to even put one's mind around and think about this. I should mention, of course, a spokesperson for McMahon claimed the lawsuit filed by um, the woman who has been named is, quote, replete with lies, obscene, made-up instances that never occurred, and a vindictive distortion of the truth. But I have to ask, I mean, even given this statement and what you've just, just described as the allegations, in 2022, he retired from his role at WWE amid, I believe, a, a special committee investigation into his alleged misconduct while chairman and CEO. But then he, he returned as a chair of the WWE parent company, TKO. What can you tell us about that investigation? Is it at all similar or connected? Yeah, so it's completely connected because the um, what happened was in Grant, who's the employee in this instance with this lawsuit, she signed a non-disclosure agreement in 2022 in which she agreed to, um, which McMahon agreed to pay her $3 million to not disclose the relationship. Um, the board got an anonymous tip about that relationship, which prompted the, that board investigation that he left amid. So now we're finally getting to see in this lawsuit what the nature of those allegations were, because at the time it was just we knew that there was a payout and that it was there was a relationship. But it wasn't what we didn't know at the time that it was that she viewed the relationship as sexual abuse and sex trafficking. Why now are we just learning? There was a non-disclosure agreement, I understand. It was tied to an amount of money that had been paid or was supposed to be paid. Why are we learning about this now? Why has she decided to come forward now with these really just, just heart-wrenching and disturbing allegations? Well, from the complaint, we can find out that he made one installment of the payment, $1 million, and then he stopped making payments. So the lawsuit actually seeks to void that NDA. And her lawyer, Ann Callis, who we um, corresponded with, she said that her motivation for coming out is to make sure that other women aren't victimized, um, because we do know of other payouts that he's made related to sexual misconduct. Khadija Safdar, thank you so much for your reporting. It's truly unbelievable. Thank you so much for illuminating this, and we will continue to follow what happens next. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. There are six people missing in Missouri, and they have been missing for months. And police believe that they may have fallen prey to some kind of an online cult led by someone who is claiming to be a prophet, the mother of one of the missing, is my guest next. Tonight, four adults and two children vanished without a trace from the Missouri home that they shared. Now, police believe that they joined some sort of an online cult run by a so-called prophet. 25-year-old Michaela Wickerson's mother says her daughter ghosted her family, quit her job, and maxed out her credit cards before disappearing in August, according to our affiliate KSDK. Now, among those missing, Michaela, her three-year-old daughter, Malaya, Jeriel German, and her son, Ashton Mitchell, Naaman Williams, and Michaela Thompson. Berkeley, Missouri police believe that they're following the teachings of a man named Rashad 
Jamal, a self-proclaimed prophet with thousands of followers. He is currently serving a prison sentence in Georgia for child molestation and denies being a cult leader. Now, Michaela Wickerson's mother, Kartisha Morgan, joins me now. Kartisha, thank you so much for being here today, just hearing and learning about what has been going on. I mean, I cannot imagine what you've had to endure as a mother waiting to have some word about your family. It has been six months since you last saw or even heard from your daughter. Talk to us about the moment that you found out that she was missing. It's just like um, a nightmare that uh, I'm waiting to wake up from. Uh, I would have never believed that I would be going through uh, this right now. And um, it's just very, uh, my heart is hurting right now. I just would, um, I just want them to come home. I hope that they're safe. And if they're listening, I just want them to know that we love them and that we want them to come back. It's just heartbreaking to think about even hearing in your voice the pain that is so evident in what you are going through. I mean, you you say that Michaela was suffering from depression. I mean, she she cut off all communication with family before disappearing. Can you just tell me what your last interaction with her was like? Was there any idea of what was to come? Uh, Well, actually, now that I look back, uh, she was distancing, distancing herself before, uh, you know, um, isolating, like um, not answering our phone calls. Um, she was saying that she was going on a spiritual journey uh, and she probably would not be answering our phone calls if we called her. And I said, well, I respect you going on a spiritual journey, but they, you know that's a little odd just for you just to cut us off like that. So I uh, was doing wellness checks with the uh, police department and CPS calls uh, once she started doing that. But at least I knew where she was. I would per- uh, periodically uh, drive down, you know, her street just to make sure that they were there. So that brought me some kind of comfort, you know. But um, yeah, I do believe she is suffering from uh, depression. Neighbors reported seeing Michaela and her housemates meditating outside with their hands up and hugging trees and standing outside at times naked in the rain. And authorities say that members of this cult that they're alleging typically disconnect in the way you've described from their family. They they go to great lengths to, to be off the grid and not found. Why do you think, if, if you can even imagine, why do you think that she would at all want to do this or even possibly join this particular cult? Um, I believe that she's hurting. I believe that she's hurting in the inside and she is searching for something. And so uh, I believe that they uh, uh, are using her. You know, I believe that they uh, realized or, you know, noticed that, you know, um, she was vulnerable and they took advantage of it. Well, I just in learning about what has happened and what you're going through, 
we certainly have to keep following and, and try to give you some semblance of peace. And I'm so grateful for you coming on and expressing and sharing what you've been feeling about your family, about your daughter. Thank you so much, Cartesia Morgan. Thank you. Up next, on the second hour of Laura Coates Live, a jury ruling that Trump must pay more than $83 million to E. Jean Carroll for defaming her. But what does all of that mean politically? The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Today's verdict will hit Donald Trump right in the wallet. But will it hurt him or help him on the campaign trail? Tonight on Laura Coates Live. $83.3 million in damages for defaming E. Jean Carroll. That's a pretty bitter pill for Donald Trump to swallow, for anyone to swallow, really. But after he built his political career, of course, on the notion that he's a billionaire, maybe not so much. Whether or not, of course, that's literally true. And none of this, by the way, is final until the judge signs off on all of it. But it doesn't stop, and it has not stopped yet, the former president from making hay of it politically. He went on social media with one of his all-time favorite charges, that phrase, you can say it with me now, witch hunt, and claiming that our legal system is being used as a political weapon. But here's the thing. Do damages that are vastly bigger than anyone expected allow him to frame all of this as an attack against him? And frankly, will it help him politically? After all, more than half of voters, more than half of voters in our New Hampshire exit poll said Donald Trump would be fit for the presidency even if he is convicted of a crime. Joining me now are Gwendolyn Keyes Fleming, a former DA in DeKalb County, Georgia, and Republican strategist Rena Shaw. I'm so glad that both of you are here. First of all, I just got to get your reaction to this, Gwen, and thinking about the fact that this is an $83 million verdict. I mean, this is not the $5 million from last year. This is also not a trial about whether sexual abuse occurred. That's already been decided. But what was your reaction to that number? So it's a statement number. I think all of us can agree on that. And again, to break it down, there's a certain element that compensates Ms. Carroll for uh, to, to repair her reputation. Uh, I believe that amount was about $18.3 million. And then it's a $65 million statement in terms of punitive damages. That's the punishment aspect. And so I think the jury, again, making this decision in less than three hours, uh, was very convinced based on the evidence that they saw, and they wanted to send a message. They did send a message, and it was unanimous, of course, as well. And of course, his message on the campaign trail, Rena, has been, everyone's against me, they're really after you, they're trying to get through me, and this is yet another example. But it might not square, because of course, this is not a criminal trial. It was a trial that was brought by a plaintiff mm -hmm. in a federal court at the civil level, but that doesn't seem to stop him. 
Well, and it doesn't really make its way down to many people. They don't see the difference between criminal and civil. They just see Trump as being, right. you know, victimized again. And it's it's almost one of those moments in which you have to say, well, who's really the victim here? Uh, because this is not the believe all women crowd when you talk about today's right. I mean, they've been this way for a while. They don't want to believe that E. Jean Carroll suffered anything from Trump. He's even said he didn't know her. So they believe that. Anything he says is fact to them, right? So that's the place you're operating from, number one. But with E.G. and Carol in particular, one thing that has been so troublesome for me in watching how the right has treated her for years now is that Trump continues to perpetuate the myth, and his cronies do too, that she's been put up to this by someone else. Mm. And this is a moment in which I have to say, why would a woman in the twilight of her life having achieved what she's achieved in her life. Why would she want to go down like this? Why would she pursue this? She is in pursuit of the truth, it seems, and she wants accountability for something she was wrong for. But again, this is not a message I expect to make its way through the noise. You know, interestingly enough, you heard Alina Haba, the attorney for Trump on the courthouse steps afterwards, attacking not only the system itself, that the New York jurors, it was a foregone conclusion. She talked about people being influenced, you know, in ways they shouldn't have been to even bring the case. But on that last point about defamation, defamation, as you know, requires there to be a lessening of one's reputation. They're arguing, no, no, it was enhanced. You are now heroic to people. What's the damage? I, I think that is a, an argument that is a huge stretch. Again, as, as Rena said, any woman that has the courage to bring charges and hold folks accountable either for uh, prior sexual acts or just the uh, types of horrendous things that we've heard said, uh, that takes real courage. And so to say that they somehow benefited from that, it, nothing could be further from the truth. I think we've seen quite a few people that have been on the other side uh, of these types of attacks, and all of them are, are looking to get some sort of uh, compensation for their reputation to be put back to where it was. What do you make of this claim, this is all Biden's doing, right? This is a Biden DOJ. You're smiling because you know the attention <laughs> between all the different types of courts and who really is the puppet master of all these things. The question presumes the conflation that everyone is doing, that there is one mastermind behind all these cases. It's not so here. No, that that is, is definitely not true. And again, let's realize we're talking about civil cases and several different criminal cases. And so uh, particularly in the criminal realm, we have grand juries that have come in. Those are ordinary residents that have evaluated the evidence and determined that there's sufficient evidence to go forward. In many of the cases, they will ultimately go to a jury, we can presume. Uh, and so again, somebody uh, will, and citizens will be making those ultimate decisions. But on the civil side, uh, again, these are individuals where there is documented evidence and the courts have ruled in their favor on various motions throughout the trial. This is not a larger conspiracy with all of these different players in all of these different cases. You know, you wouldn't know that it's like 284 days away from a general election, because right now we're not talking about somebody who wants to be the presumptive nominee in terms of policy arguments. We're talking about 91 charges, 83 million bucks, and in fact, Nikki Haley, who was vying to be the Republican nominee, posted on X and said this, Donald Trump wants to be the presumptive Republican nominee, and we're talking about $83 million in damages. We're not talking about fixing the border. We're not talking about tackling inflation. America can do better than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So obviously, Rena, there is the political aspect of all of this, of what's not being talked about. The oxygen in the room, the distraction. He's using that to his advantage. 
more than a distraction. In the court of public opinion, he knows he wins every time that he spins. And that's why he has Alina Haba, a woman who I think is grossly unqualified to represent him, yet she does the job that he wants. Every time she leaves a courtroom, she goes out to the cameras and she spins it. Because again, with his base of support, and, and it's made its way to even more moderate Republican members. I've seen it. They have drank the Kool-Aid saying that it does feel like conspiratorial. So what Nikki Haley is trying to do in bringing an honest message of saying, this is too much for us, let him go deal with his problems on his own, just cannot work. Because in the past few years in particular, Laura, there have been overtures made to try to have Trump's legal bills paid for by the RNC. We have not yet even gotten fact enough to know, has that even happened? I'm actually, I feel that there have been legal bills paid by various entities that go right back to the RNC. But are any members of Congress willing to talk about it? They will squash all this so that the general public continues to think Trump is being victimized, Democrats are the demon, and you need to show up at the ballot box because he's putting you first. Speaking of the ballot box, I mean, there is a focus on a number of states. I mean, Ray Charles talks about Georgia on our mind. It's true when it comes to not only voting, it's true when it comes to Fannie Willis and the state-level prosecution of election subversion and RICO charges. I mentioned the word distraction, and we're talking about from the perspective of Nikki Haley, politically, of Donald Trump. But there is also a scandal that is brewing in Georgia with respect to whether what's being alleged there is a distraction. What's your take? You, you were a Georgia prosecutor. You must have an opinion. I do. Uh, well, she leaned forward. Oh. <laughs> Wait, let me get my seat. Where's, where's my seat? Okay, here, what? Go ahead. Look. We all know that divorce cases are emotional, they're messy, and very often they leave people in their wake. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in this case there. Regardless of what happens in that case, the fact remains, one, that we are not talking about the evidence anymore. Remember, this is a case where two sets of grand jurors, again, total of about 40 or so ordinary citizens, passed judgment and decided there was sufficient evidence to bring the charges. This DA has now four defendants admit guilt in open court, going through their rights, admitting under oath that they, they committed various elements of the charges that they ultimately pled to. And what people are forgetting is that all of that is proceeding. We have the calls on tape uh, from January 2nd. That's not a question, but we're not talking about that evidence anymore. And so again, I think we all need to wait and allow DA Willis to respond officially. She's required to do so by next Friday. Uh, and then let's see what the judge does. But based on Georgia law, even assuming all of it is true, she is not required to be disqualified based on Georgia law because none of it describes a personal interest in the outcome. For her. And that's what's required. This is not a situation where there's a contingency fee that you only get paid if you get a conviction. This is not a situation where there's a relationship alleged with a witness that may lie to improve the relationship with the DA's mm -hmm. office. Again, it is a distraction. Uh, and we all, there's many of us that hope that we can get back to talking about the facts of the case and letting that work its way through the justice system. Oh, bless your heart for the focus. <laughs> oh, I love it. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, like you, am eager to hear about the facts and the meat of the matter. And we'll see if we get there on all of these fronts. Gwendolyn, Keyes, Fleming, Rena Shaw, thank you both so much for your insight and intellects tonight. I appreciate it. Meanwhile, there's new pressure tonight on Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, the Georgia State Senate, creating now a special committee to investigate allegations that she had an improper affair with Nathan Wade, 
who Willis hired as lead prosecutor in the 2020 election subversion case. A Georgia state representative separately introduced a resolution to impeach D.A. Willis today, and a third co-defendant in the case joined Donald Trump to ask that Willis be disqualified from the prosecution due to the allegations. Judge Scott McAfee will hold a hearing on all of that next month. My next guest is an expert in legal ethics. In a New York Times op-ed, he argues that for the sake of the case, D.A. Willis should take a personal leave of absence and step aside. Professor Clark Cunningham joins me now. Professor Cunningham, thank you for joining. You just heard um, my colleagues discuss the nature of the allegations and not being a disqualification or disqualifying factor. And you say that if the judge decides Willis is disqualified, People might not realize it's not just her. The whole staff is disqualified and a separate state agency then has to appoint someone to take over. Tell me about what this could mean down the line if this threat is followed. Right. <clears throat> well, I, I certainly agree with your prior guest that uh, it's too early to decide one way or the other or have an opinion about these motions to disqualify the district attorney. Uh, I, I myself have said I want to see her reply when it comes in on February the 2nd. Uh, so far, the defendants haven't actually put any evidence in court. They say they will do it at the evidentiary hearing on February 15th. So it, it's definitely too early, uh, in my view, to, to actually say one way or the other whether the disqualification motion will be granted. But uh, what I believe is that uh, the risks are very, very great of uh, going forward and fighting the disqualification motion even if uh, the district attorney Willis uh, eventually prevails because of the reality of delay. And that's what you're asking me about, Laura. Um, if the uh, motion is granted uh, in February or whenever uh, by Judge McAfee, then her entire office is disqualified um, because the power to act uh, derives from the district attorney. And then a state agency is charged to appoint a special prosecutor. And that really could take a long time. Um, we've that she's already been disqualified for one defendant back at the stage of the special grand jury. Uh, and uh, it's now 18 months since that disqualification decision, and there's still no special prosecutor appointed. So, so we could- But, but hold on, so, Professor, on that point, if, you, if the whole office would be disqualified, and that's of course an if, and we don't know the outcome, whoever would replace and whoever might replace might decide not to even pursue the prosecution. They're not, their hands are not tied. They're not bound to do whatever their predecessors have done, right? Right. That's the even greater risk for, for, the, for the case is not just delay, but that the new prosecutor who is appointed will take a look and decide to reduce charges or maybe even dismiss everything. Uh, and that's the end of the case. So even though people say there's no risk of the indictment being dismissed because of these charges, you could end up in the same place. Um, and in, in fact, that again happened in a uh, qualification involving this DA's office uh, a couple of years ago involving the Rayshard Brooks police shooting situation where uh, a district attorney Willis voluntarily disqualified herself because of the conduct of her predecessor, Paul Howard, again went to appointment of a special prosecutor nothing happened for two years and then the special prosecutor dismissed the charges decided the police officers committed no crimes so that's a real risk so who is in charge of the agency that would be appointing uh, a new prosecution right team? Pete, Pete Scandalakis uh, is the executive director of the prosecuting attorneys council of Georgia he actually was the special prosecutor 
who decided to dismiss those charges against the police officers in the Rayshard Brooks case. He could appoint himself, um, but he could appoint a, a private attorney. He could appoint an existing district attorney. Part of the problem, I gather, is it may not be easy to find somebody who wants the job. Uh, there's not, I think, good resources to pay a private attorney. And the existing DA offices that are large enough I, I still don't want to take on this case. The other problem is that, as I say, even if she prevails, uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers are going to ask for an interlocutory appeal. You're very familiar with that, of course, Laura. Um, that but would be up to Judge McAfee. Might not be. Let's explain what that is, Professor. Sure. Well, an interlocutory <laughs> appeal. Sure. Uh, you know, that's an opportunity to uh, appeal an issue before you go to trial. And that's exactly what's happening in the Jack Smith case in the District of Columbia. Uh, the, the, the judge's uh, decision there on, on presidential immunity is being appealed to the Court of Appeals, and there's, a, and there's a halt while that decision is being made. That could happen here as well. So she could win for the moment in front of Judge McAfee, but if uh, Donald Trump succeeds in getting a, uh, a, a temporary appeal to the Court of Appeals oh. and uh, then a stay, then it could be in the Court of Appeals for, for months, and then whoever loses in the Court of Appeals could go to the Georgia Supreme Court. Um, and if this case does not complete and Donald Trump, uh, before the general election, and, and Trump is elected again, he's going to argue that he cannot be prosecuted even in state court while he's a sitting president. So the case might then go on hold oh for four years. So, so delay, is, delay is fatal, potentially. Professor Clark Cunningham, we've learned a lot, and we know now that next week's hearing, a lot is on the line. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you tonight, Laura. Up next, trouble in the Ivy League. Why a big donor says Cornell has a toxic environment and why he says the university's president should step down. Tonight, a bit of a nursery rhyme for Ivy League schools in trouble. First came Penn, then came Harvard, next comes Cornell and its president. Out with the bathwater? Donors have now made a big ask of that school's trustees to fire Cornell President Martha Pollack. They want her out over what they call her, or her, is her shameful response, or lack thereof, to anti-Semitism, especially when compared to her swift response to the George Floyd tragedy. The open letter written by John Lindsay outlines seven demands. They include scrapping DEI staffing and canceling the opening of a proposed center for racial justice on Cornell's campus. Joining me now, Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy. Professor, thank you so much for being here this evening. Do you believe the Cornell president, based on these seven different points, will soon be out of a job or ought to be? Well, on the question of will the president be ousted, uh, two other presidents have been ousted, so that could certainly happen. On the, on the question of whether this sh should happen, you know, on the, on the basis of what we know thus far, you know, the, the details are rather murky. There, there are a couple of things, however, which seem to me quite troubling. One, uh, the whole question of, you know, donors, big donors. You know, um, just because you've given money to an institution doesn't mean that your complaints should be taken more seriously than the facts warrant. And my sense is that uh, in the reporting about this, 
the the fact that these that some of the donors are are big donors is uh, used as an excuse to give their complaints more credence. That's one complaint that I have. There's a second one that focuses on the the uh, the attack on DEI. Mm-hmm. You know, in this in the attacks on DEI, there's a sense of restoration. You know. Um, the idea is sometimes that DEI has really hurt the universities. Let's get rid of DEI and make our universities great again. Um, there's a reason why DEI came to the fore. It was a well-intentioned uh, effort to make elite institutions more welcoming to people who had long been excluded or marginalized, women, people of color, uh, people um, who, whose, uh, whose sexual orientations were, were heterodox. Um, DEI is an effort to make these institutions more welcoming to those people who had been excluded, and that's a good thing. Now. Of so course, professor, there are sometimes some who look at DEI, excuse me, I was going to say, there are people who, one, would say, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I've often heard that phrase, and they would look at DEI mm-hmm. as something that is exclusionary. Now, as a result, you don't share that particular opinion, but what do you say to those who say, well, that might have been the intention, but the result is different? What's your reaction? My reaction is that, first of all, DEI is a, is a, is a catchword, a catchphrase. Mm-hmm. It covers a lot of territory. I think that there is a lot that has been, that is good about the DEI enterprise. Like I said, these institutions are considerably more welcoming than they used to be, and that's a good thing. On the other hand, that's right, there are aspects of the DEI bureaucracies that are problematic. Uh, I think sometimes that people who have good intentions, you know, they, they, they go too far. One aspect of DEI that bothers me is the impulse towards um, compelling people. So, for instance, uh, if you want to apply to some to many universities actually, yeah. or to get promoted at universities, you're required to file so-called um, DEI statements Ooh. in which you are required yes. to talk about how you would effectuate DEI in your research or your teaching. I think that's bad. I think that's that 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 it seems like a uh, a loyalty test. And that's not a good thing. So I think in certain ways, DEI goes overboard. But in general, uh, I think it has been, on yeah. balance, uh, a useful intervention. Well, regardless of that position, it certainly has come under attack. We'll see where it leads next. Professor Kennedy, as always, a pleasure to pick your brain. Thank you so much. Coming up, CNN's presentation of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher. All right, now let's turn it over to our friends at HBO because every Friday after Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions about topics in the national conversation. Here is Overtime with Bill Maher. 
Hi, CNN. Here's our panel. He hosts the first take in the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Stephen A. Smith is over here. And he's a comedian, comedian, writer, and producer whose new series, Ted, is streaming on Peacock. Seth MacFarlane is over here. And the Democratic congressman from California, Adam Schiff. He's going to be the senator from California. Okay. All right, here's what people want to know. What are the panel's thoughts on the jury awarding... Oh, this happened just before we went on the air. The jury awarding E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million in damages in her suit against Donald Trump. Donald Trump, what do we think? Not good, right? This, this, was, a, this, this, was, the, this was the suit that he got threatened to be thrown out of uh, several times, right? Right. Like, how toxic do you have to be where you're too rude to be on trial for sexual assault? Right. <laughs> I think it's it's true justice. Uh, The only thing he cares about is himself and money, uh, and going after the money is a a way to bring about some real justice. Do you think he did it? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) You do? You think think he raped Uh, her in Bergdorf Goodman? Yeah. You think he raped her in Bergdorf Goodman? I have no idea. Here's what I will tell you. It means, it means absolutely nothing. Doesn't mean a damn thing. Right. And, and I get tired of people trying to act like it. First of all, the man is running for president of the United States, and part of the reason he's running for it is because he's getting those campaign dollars so he can pick up the money for, to pay for his legal bills. That's what he's going to do. It's not, he's not going to lose any money. Right. Secondly, it ain't going to be $83.3 million. He'll appeal it. It'll get knocked down. And I'm just getting tired of seeing so much stuff targeted in his direction, but somehow, some way, he still survives. I mean, we're talking about a situation where he's still going to be the GOP nominee. He's still going to be running for president. You're President Biden. That's the individual that you're going to have to beat. Four indictments, 91 counts. They ain't even bringing up the bankruptcies. Ain't even bringing up this particular issue with this civil case. And somehow, some way, he puts cats to shame because he clearly has more than nine lives. <laughs> I mean, come on. Hey, you, know, you, you, come on. You, you bring up... The, the most perfect uh, disparity between these two people is like he cares about himself, he cares about money, and you have Joe Biden who put forth the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which contains climate provisions that are going to probably bear fruit long after he's gone. Mm-hmm. Oh, long after he's gone. Absolutely. What does he have to gain by that? Nothing, except, uh, God forbid I use the word altruism. Yeah. Well, you know, look, um, I don't, I don't share your pessimism about this or your pessimism about the general election. The reason why Joe Biden is going to beat Donald Trump is because at the end of the day, America is going to want a president who is a decent human being, uh, who doesn't, who doesn't yeah. shit on other people, um, who has, has some uh, interest in the American people, some interest in something beyond himself. I think at the end of the day, people are going to reject this this bigoted, divisive figure, uh, they're gonna they're not gonna want to put the country through. Well, they, well, they have that. they have every time uh, except at one time. Yeah. <laughs> no, really. I mean, yeah. he didn't he didn't he he really lost every election except the 2016, and that of course he didn't really win that one either. Yeah, I mean, right. he did not the popular vote. Right. And I also you know I, I don't know whether he did it, but I don't put anything past him. I also think Bergdahl should have better um, security. Has there has there been has there been uh, any point in history in which, not to say it's a cult, but has there been any point in history in which the same candidate has been put forth three times in a row, three elections in a row by the same party? Three elections. That's a great question. Three elections in a row. Um, it could have happened with, who's the guy? Teddy Roosevelt. 
But I guess well, Roosevelt, the, well, well yeah. Franklin Roosevelt parties. won four elections in a row. So there you go. Yeah, but you know, given the circumstances, right? <laughs> what were, what were the <laughs> well, there's always I'll, something going on in the. Country, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, no, really, you, you can't do that. You can't be like, well, there's a war on. You, 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 we have to stick with right. me. I mean, that doesn't work. Lost it's a, popular, a depression. Stick with me. You lost a popular vote in both elections, but the bottom line is this: I respect the fact that you don't share my pessimism. I truly do. I understand where you're coming from, but I think that's part of the problem. I think the Democratic Party should share my pessimism. I think they should be on high alert. I think they need to uh, to treat him with the seriousness that it deserves because oh, I, you're, you're, having, you're having a lot of faith in the American people. The man did get over 74 million votes. You've got people that are looking at Joe Biden. I'm not going to call him a cognitive mess or anything like that. That's very disrespectful. I would never speak about our president that way. But when you're 82 years of age, it's not, it's not offensive to say you're no longer a spring chicken and you don't seem to have the level of five and, and the energy that you want you to have. And so you take that into consideration. You take that into consideration. You can't ignore the fact that this man is a threat. Oh, make no mistake. I take him as serious as a heart attack. Okay. Um, I, I'm optimistic, but, but we're going to have to fight tooth and nail. And one of the biggest obstacles we're going to have to overcome is all the efforts to prevent people from voting. Okay. Uh, we're going to have to turn out our people. Uh, we're going to have to work like never before. We're going to have to work like mm -hmm. our democracy is on the line because it damn well is. Right. Uh, and yeah. and I, I don't, so I, I take this as serious as a heart attack. Let's interject one thing into this discussion about Trump that we've been having all night. It was a question I was going to ask you. We ran out of time. Sure. The Atlantic put out an article last year, and it was called Separating Sports by Sex Doesn't Make Sense. Right. And talked about how we separate sports like the WNBA and the other, just because it's just socialization. This is insane. I agree. Okay. That's why people vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. Because there's stuff like that on the left that people just go, uh, I know Trump's horrible. But separating by sports by sex makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And if you think it doesn't, uh, you can't leave the country. And that's Literally. cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, okay, okay, okay. I'm just, I'm just giving you the answer to the question you're asking all night long. Why do they vote for Donald Trump? It's not always because they like him. No, it's because I, stuff like that well, is kookier. People, to them. people, and there's lots of. It's kookier than and, trashing the Capitol. What the fuck? It thinking, <laughs> thinking, think. In a way, it is. How is it? It's, it's apples and oranges. It's apples and oranges. One is more evil. One is one is more horrible. But thinking that, I mean, what would happen if we combine the WNBA and the NBA? No, please, it was well. LeBron would go from averaging 25 to averaging 70. <laughs> because I have the team, I mean, you mix it up and he'd hold the ball just, and just, create you know the mismatch just, and take just, advantage of the you're both, you're both right. And it's, I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. Like, I, I, when you donate to the Democratic Party, which I have, you get to do certain things. And I, I got to... I didn't get even a, get a thank you. <laughs> I, I got on a... I gave, I, a, I gave him a million dollars yeah. twice. I didn't get a... I, um, I got on a Zoom. Can I just say thank you? Thank yeah, you very yes, much. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I, I got on a Zoom with Biden for like 10 minutes. So you, can, you can talk to Biden for 10 minutes alone. Like, okay, great, wow. That was AI Biden. <laughs> <laughs> that was not Biden. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, it wasn't AI Biden. Right. Um, but but the, the, what I took away from that was that, oh, this guy is not the world's greatest public speaker, but I'm right. now getting why people like Lindsey Graham are defending him and saying, like, if you don't like Joe Biden, there's something wrong with you, which you can look it up. He did, he did say, I'm paraphrasing because I've right. had 100 drinks. But, 
But he did, he did essentially say that, like, if you don't like Joe Biden as a person, there's something wrong with you. You need to look yourself in the mirror. But there's a flip side. And here's the flip side. You can like Joe Biden, but hate Capitol Hill. As of it, course. As, as, it is, as it has been for so many years. When you look at people, think about Trump. You ever watch Trump debate? This is why I was joking around and said I challenged him to a debate. What would I have to worry about? He doesn't say anything. You, I, he goes up against Democrats. I'm, it's going to be very, very good. It's going to be fabulous. But they Watch. Uh, wait, 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 wait. He hasn't said anything, right? And nobody, on the side, nobody on the Democratic side has, what is it, the pizzazz. I know you got the substance, but you've got a lot of people out there that are preoccupied with their own lives, and they want somebody that knows how to ingratiate themselves. that's what in debates like, is called a gish gallop. Okay, it's called call a gish gallop. I, I understand It's that, when you disseminate so much bullshit, you're like Biff in Back to the right. Future, getting right. fucking <laughs> dumped on hey, by the hey, manure truck. But it doesn't now. work. If you Run think CNN. Trump doesn't say anything oh, during shit. a debate, you should see... Tell me. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't right, think Donald right, Trump right. says anything Very during debate, right. you should watch Steve Garvey. Right. You can't defend yourself tell against you. an onslaught of lies and bullshit. Where you I have just to said we're on CNN. I'm on Fox. What's the difference? I know, but we're not supposed to swear. Really? <laughs> on CNN? Yeah. No. You're going to lose this gig for me. We got to go. <laughs> You can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 11.30. Up next, Taylor Swift becoming the latest person to fall prey to AI deepfakes. And now the White House is weighing in. You know, if you've been online in the past 24 hours, you might have heard about pornographic AI-generated images of Taylor Swift that were spreading across social media like a plague. That is, until an army of Taylor Swift's fans, the Swifties, rolled in to save the day. They posted under the hashtags ProtectTaylorSwift, coupled with tons of real, decent images of the pop star. The social media flood served as an effective stopgap measure that was enough to push the images off the main page of X so the company themselves took action. But at that point, the images had already been viewed tens of millions of times. And just in case you're curious about just how good deep fakes have gotten today, take a look at these. This is a fake AI-generated image of Donald Trump being arrested and another of the Pope and a fantastic-looking puffer jacket. Both of those are fake. I want to bring in Taylor Lawrence, a columnist for The Washington Post. Taylor, thank you for joining us today. I mean, there are reports that it took nearly 17 hours, I think, for X to take down these images. But once something is online, the concern that everyone has is, can it ever really go away? Unfortunately, no. I mean, once something is out there on the internet, uh, it can be removed from one platform, usually temporarily, but that just means it makes its way all around across, you know, deeper and darker corners of the internet. Um, these videos and images are already being disseminated in telegram groups, discord servers, group chats, message boards. Um, once they're out there, they're out there. 
I mean, just just thinking about the the violation of one's privacy, even if it's not an actual image of yourself, the suggestion that it is the way that people are going to try to um, use it in these salacious and disgusting ways. I mean, the White House is even commenting on these images, calling it alarming. And actually, they're calling on Congress for legislation to try to tackle the issue. I mean, is it even possible to regulate something like this, not just being reactive, but maybe preventing it in the first place? Well, it's really hard to prevent this type of thing in the first place, but I think the social media platforms can undeniably do better. As you mentioned, it took 17 hours to get these images taken down. There's no way that that kind of time frame is acceptable. Um, and we've seen this type of stuff spreading previously, not just about other celebrities, but other random women, um, you know, even teenagers. Um, you know, this kind of thing can happen to anyone and it's a growing problem. So. I mean, I think it's hard to kind of stop all of it from being uploaded, but we can certainly take it down in a faster manner. I mean, if it takes 17 hours to get it taken down and it's a purportedly an AI image of Taylor Swift, a huge celebrity, what would it take the average person to try to use that system to get it taken down? I mean, just think about that, America, what that would look like. I mean, next week, Congress is going to hold a hearing on how to protect kids online with the CEOs of some of the entities you just named, Discord and Meta and Snap and TikTok and X. Can you talk about how all of this will really impact regular people? Absolutely. I mean, look, this AI deepfake porn images are being created by about high school girls. Um, you have girls as young as 13 and 14 dealing with you know, sexually explicit images, um, often synthetically made by other teenage boys. Um, uh, the writer Kat Tembarge has done excellent work on this. So um, you know, it's affecting children, and I think this goes back to protecting children online, but also protecting women online. Ultimately, the root of these attacks is misogyny. And um, you, know, you saw SAG after actually speaking on behalf of Taylor today. Um, you know, in support of her sort of calling out that those motivations. So I really wish that these tech platforms took online harassment against women more seriously. I think had they done that and built a lot of these features in years ago, we wouldn't be in this tough position that we are today. Well, let's hope at least the hearing next week moves the needle towards trying to not only condemn, but deter and prevent and hold accountable those who are engaged in this behavior, particularly as it relates to children. Taylor Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Up next, can we learn anything from the Super Bowl logo? Conspiracy theorists think it reveals the whole thing is scripted. Yep, we'll explain it next. It seems no aspect of life is untouched by conspiracy theories these days, not even the sacred annual Sunday event, otherwise known as the Super Bowl. Well, there's a bizarre theory that is going around and gaining some momentum that the colors of the game's logo are spilling the tea. And the whole shebang is predetermined. As I like to say, what the Friday? Well, CNN's Coy Wire descends into the madness. All right, something's going on with the Super Bowl logos. Is this magic, coincidence, something supernatural, or maybe it's part of this giant league-wide conspiracy, as some have said. Are the NFL seasons scripted? What's going on here? Welcome to the table read for the 104th season of the NFL. Let's get to work. At the start of the season, the NFL launched an ad joking that the games were scripted, but many online, they think it's true. 
For the last two seasons, the Super Bowl logos match the color schemes of the two teams playing in it, but the league tells us they design these logos up to two years in advance. In 2022, the Super Bowl 56 logo had the orange of the Cincinnati Bengals and gold of the LA Rams. The following season, the colors were replaced by Philadelphia Eagles green and Kansas City Chiefs red. Is this some master plan and we're all just drinking the Kool-Aid? Was I predetermined to play for the Falcons and the Buffalo Bills before that? No. Some online are calling foul, suggesting some nefarious conspiracy theory that the league already knows what teams it wants to make the big game and they flaunt a predetermined outcome right in our faces. This year's Super Bowl logo colors, purple and red, leaving only one possible outcome for this weekend's conference championships. Time will tell if the Ravens and 49ers prove the Super Bowl logo right yet again. The NFL has denied any conspiracy theory. They would say that, wouldn't they? Not the tinfoil hat. Coy Wire, thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. I'll be live on Instagram at the Laura Coast in just a couple minutes for the after show. Be sure to tune in. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.